Turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 20. We've come to the first commandment here in our series on the Ten Commandments. We spent the first three weeks in this series um, just an introduction to the Ten Commandments thinking about God's law, and I, I want to, um, I want to urge you, and I, I rarely say something like this, but if you didn't hear those sermons, or if you missed a couple of them, uh, I want to urge you to, to go back and listen to those online. Um, there are just a lot of crucial things, I think, that we wrestled with, uh, that we won't at length, again, at least, and how does God's law relate to His grace? Uh, how is it part of His grace, part of His gift of grace to us? Um, how is it a, a mirror that shows us our need for Christ, and a, a map that shows us uh, what life in Christ should look like? Um, and, and several other very significant um, questions that teaches us how to love the Lord, how to love others, and so on. So just want to encourage you to, to listen to those if you haven't. I think it will uh, help you um, profit along with us. Um, more as, as we go through this series. You have a half sheet there in your in your bulletin um, with a couple things. On the one side is questions we'll use. You can leave those till um, our, our class time. We'll use that for our discussion. On um, the other side, uh, as, as the sermons in this series are, are more topical sermons, I tend when preaching topically to include more more quotes and, and scripture references and so on more than I normally like to do. Um, so I maybe it's helpful to have some of those in front of you. Should, should follow along as, as I use them. Let's read simply uh, the first three verses of Exodus 20. Here this one. Hear God's holy word. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. A few years ago, an executive at Airbnb, along with a chaplain from Stanford, wrote a book together about atheism. It was a book for atheists that helped do that, um, I guess. And one piece of it that got a fair bit of broader attention uh, before the book, they solicited ideas for a new Ten Commandments, a new Non-Ten Commandments is what they call it. A, a humanist non-commandments. And they, they, I guess, chose the winners and included that in their book. But uh, one of those was particularly foundational. Number nine um, was simply this. There is no right way to live. There is no right way to live. Um, and even though they numbered it nine, it was really the point of the whole list. It was, it was foundational. Um, it tells you how to understand the whole. Um, it, in fact, negates any kind of command uh, at all for their list of ten non-commandments. Well, the first of God's ten commandments uh, is also, in a somewhat parallel way, but in a somewhat opposite way, is also foundational to the rest. It tells us how to understand them. It's, all the other commands flow out of the first commandment. You get the first commandment wrong, uh, you can't possibly keep any of the other nine commandments uh, fully. And, and uh, in the reverse, if you break one of the other nine commandments, it's because you've already broken the first commandment. Uh, they're inseparable in that way. Um, somewhat like a, 
a sign I saw for sale at Walmart recently. It said, house rules. Rule number one, mom's in charge. Rule number two, see rule number one. Um, doesn't mean there aren't other rules, but, but the point was that rule number one is connected to any other rules there are. You get that one wrong, and, and uh, you can't get anything else right. Um, without the first commandment, all the rest of the commands fall. In fact, we, we might say all of Christianity falls without the first commandment. Uh, that doesn't stop some people from trying to hold the two together. Uh, there was a controversy in the United Church of Canada a few years ago. The United Church of Canada is the largest denomination in Canada. Um, it was a merger of the Presbyterian Church of Canada, the Methodist Church, and some others 100 years ago. Uh, but a few years ago, a pastor in the UCC, uh, somewhat famously now, made a statement about the killings in uh, Paris several years ago, that Charlie Hebdo killings. Uh, she, this pastor, she said uh, in response that it's belief in God that makes people do all the most evil things. And she revealed that she's actually an atheist. And so a little controversy ensued in the church over whether she should continue as a pastor and the result of that, that little controversy was, that's fine. That's quite all right. And so she continues this day as a pastor in the United Church of Canada, even though she denies openly the existence of God uh, himself. You can't hold on to Christianity without the first and foundational commandment, let alone all the other commands. But I want to look at this uh, command in three parts today. First, just consider the basic meaning of it, and secondly, get at the, the central issue, the central problem. This will be thinking about the the negative side of the ten, this this commandment, um, and, and we'll spend most of our time there. I'll, I'll give a little more explanation for that later, um, and then and then finish with with briefly considering the positive side of the ten commandments. And, and one of the main reasons for the the lopsided time we'll give to those um, is that has a lot to do with what we did. Uh, what we've been talking about the last three weeks uh, in introduction to the, the Ten Commandments. So first, the, the basic meaning, which I'm summarizing this way, God tolerates no rivals. God tolerates no rivals. Just think about the immediate background to God giving the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. It was there being Egypt. right? And from uh, the time of Jacob and Joseph on, they, they lived in Egypt for 400 years. And Egypt was sort of the... the arch example of pantheism in the ancient world. They had 1,400 plus gods that we know of, uh, in Egypt. An unbelievable number of gods. And it seems clear that the Israelites worship these gods too. Uh, there are references later in the New Testament, in the Old Testament to the, the Israelites even after the Exodus says they, they didn't fully put away the gods of Egypt. Um, for those 400 years, whatever um, whatever memory and, and serving of the true God of Jacob that they had that remained, it at least became mixed with many of them with, with worshiping these, these many gods of Egypt as well. So God is calling them, in the Exodus, calling them not only away from slavery to Pharaoh, but slavery to all of these false gods. And in the ten plagues, as has been pointed out many times, God was uh, one by one in the ten plagues, humiliating some of the main gods of the Egyptians. Really humiliating the Egyptians for, for worshiping these, these false gods. Um, so you have Apis, the bull god, and 
livestock. Humiliated the idea of worshiping Apis. Uh, you have Isis, the god of healing, among other things. Uh, everyone got boils, got horribly sick. Uh, there's Ray, the sun god. Uh, one of the plagues was, was total blackness. And again, humiliating the idea of worshiping Ray. Uh, and then the always the newest god, and maybe the most heinous god, because he was an actual human, uh, was Pharaoh's son. Pharaoh's son was always thought to be the next god. And that, of course, is the last of the plagues deals with, with that, humiliating the idea of worshiping uh, firstborn son. Uh, god was calling the Israelites, along with any Egyptians who would get the message, and many did, we often forget, many Egyptians went with the Israelites, um, to know and worship the one true God. And that's what the first commandment calls uh, people to do. Um, sometimes, if you look at the verse 3 here, sometimes the wording gives people questions. Sometimes it, it says you shall have no other gods. Is that um, somehow confirming that there are other gods, but they're not an option for, for God's people? Um, no, it's not acknowledging other gods. Sometimes uh, great Kings or rulers in the Bible are called gods, small g. Um, so whether it's a, an imagined god or a, a ruler, uh, they're called gods. That word is used because there's some overlap. They have some power. They have glory. They, they exert control over people who serve them. Uh, that, that's really kind of the idea. And Paul writes in Galatians 4, uh, Formerly, when you did not know God to be God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So you had gods, but they're not really gods, right? Um, and it also says, no other gods before me. That sometimes sounds to people like, well, God just can't take second place, right? But uh, literally, the, the Hebrew there reads, before my face. No other gods before my face. And that, that phrase in Hebrew is used in a couple different ways. It, it can be spatial, like no, no one in front of me. Um, well, how would you apply that to God? Well, God is everywhere. It excludes the possibility of having a God, another God, anywhere. Uh, the other way that before my face is used is, is in opposition. We have, we have sayings face to face or in your face. I was saying no, no other God in, in, in any kind of rivalry to me at all. The, the first commandment is affirming that there's no neutrality towards the one true God. There's no no mixing God with, with others. Uh, it's the challenge that Joshua put to the people of Israel. Joshua 24. Choose this day who we will serve. Jesus in the New Testament said, no one can serve two masters. There's, there's no mushy middle. There's no halfway or, or partial commitment to the one true God. Uh, you're either fully committed to the one true God or you're not. I recently watched a... Uh, Google has these things, they, they put them on YouTube, they call them Google Talks, uh, where they, they invite all different kinds of authors and speakers to come to Google to speak to their employees. And they recently had Tim Keller come and speak about a recent book of his. Um, it's apologetic, it's, it's to skeptics or something like that. Um, and, and he spoke for a little bit and he took questions. And, and one lady, a Google employee, stood up and uh, said, basically, it's, it's nice, it's fine that you're a Christian pastor, um, but won't you make room for some of us people like me, she was saying, who are not, we're not atheists, we're not secular, we're just, we're spiritual, right? We, we take, 
we take what's what's good and appreciate what's good from many different religions. None of them is necessarily superior to any other. It's, it's essentially the, the religion of Oprah, right? Um, and you can see that interaction if you want, but, but the point is God does not put up with any rivals or any half-devotion. He, he is the ultimate and only source of good and truth and salvation. And, and as the one true creator, we owe him all obedience and worship. Not, not picking and choosing some things that, that we like. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll wrestle with the word jealousy in the second commandment. Uh, but but there's, that's certainly uh, implied here as, as well. Um, we get a, we get a taste and implication of that here. God tolerates no rivals; He will not share His glory. Now, to modern ears, that sounds maybe selfish, arrogant. It did to, to ancient pantheistic ears too. Having one God alone who claims all glory and worship was was unique in the ancient world. Um, but we know intuitively, even from our lives, that there are things that can't be shared, that shouldn't be shared. That that's, that's kind of helps us to understand this. We, we think of private information, or, or sexual relations in a marriage, or, or lighter example, like a uni, unicycle or something like that. You, you can't share, some things are not to be shared. Well, as the one true, only God, the only creator, the only redeemer, of those who have sinned against him alone, God cannot share his glory. God, God can't pretend that there could be any rival to his truth or his sovereignty or his salvation. That would be a lie. Uh, it, would, it, would, it leads to death, too. And so God, in the very first commandment, you might say, demands an exclusive relationship with himself, of his people. He demands an exclusive relationship. And we think about Think about Israel's perennial problem from here on out, for, for you know, centuries after this. Uh, their problem is not atheism, that didn't really exist in the ancient world. Their problem is not, not in the main, pure paganism, turning away entirely from the true God and worshipping a different God, sometimes they did that. But it was, in the main, it was syncretism. It was having God and, right? They always wanted to have God and some other God. We, we can have the same struggle. This is some of what we'll talk about this morning. We want God and pleasure. We want God and reputation. Or God and wealth. Not that any of those things are inherently wrong. But we can raise them up as something that we're serving. Something that's controlling our lives. Uh, along with God. So we need to hear the same call to exclusive covenant relationship founded on the sovereign loving grace of God with that God and for his glory alone. But consider secondly the, the central issue uh, which is idolatry. The, the problem that's confronted here in the first commandment having any other gods besides or, or any other gods alongside of the true God uh, and, and in any way rivaling his commands, his sovereignty, his salvation the Bible calls idolatry. Uh, one, one author is, was reading uh, recently, was wrestling with um, ways to read the whole biblical story, like a, a theme to trace through to help us understand. So we think of uh, the kingdom would be one. You know, God establishing his kingdom, or uh, God's covenant unfolding, the whole way through his scriptures. Uh, this writer suggested one of the ways to read the Bible 
is the ages-long struggle between true faith and idolatry. Uh, I also uh, read recently, David Pallison says, the idolatry is by far the most frequently discussed problem in the Scriptures. Um, noting that the, the second commandment that we'll take up next week also deals with idolatry. We might say that uh, one-fifth one-fifth of the entire moral law of God deals with idolatry. So there, there are hardly any bigger themes for us to understand the Scriptures. Yet sometimes I think we miss this. We miss that the significance of that theme in the Scriptures because we think of little statues, right, when we hear idolatry. And the scriptural category is much bigger. The scriptures speak of idolatry of the heart. That's where idols are made and are worshipped. Uh, whether we ever craft everything, anything out of wood or stone or paint something or that we worship or not. And so what, what I want us to understand is that idolatry is every bit as much an, an issue today for each of us uh, as it was 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. So I want to, I have four points here concerning idolatry. Um, why we need uh, the first commandment relative to idolatry. Why we need, how we need to understand this is really the, the central issue here in this command. So the, the first letter A there is simply idolatry is natural to us. It's natural to us as sinners. Which is why we need the first commandment. Uh, we, we are naturally and inescapably, all humans are worshippers. Uh, in, in some sense, every human lives for something, or many things, that, that shapes his or her life, controls and drives his or her life. Uh, as an idol, they're a worshipper. Even as Christians, we, we know and are committed to the true God, but our, our hearts are constantly creating and tempted towards idols. And even the Christian life is a struggle against competing allegiances. It's often hard to recognize our idols. They become so much a part of us, a part of our hearts. Uh, there, there are several questions we can ask ourselves to, to get at. What, what, what idols maybe do I struggle with? One question would be, what do you love? What do you love? There are many good things to love. Of course, but what do you love that may be rivaling your love and your loyalty to God? That may be controlling you over against His call, His claim on your life. Uh, what you love is seen in, in what you think about, what dominates your mind. Uh, it's seen in how you spend your money, or what you're excited by, or maybe even especially what you're angered by. You can sort of read it backwards. <laughs> Church Father Origen said, What each honors before all else, what before all things he admires and loves, this for him is God. And part of the trick is that, well, certainly there's sin and idolatry that's just, it's just us loving what is wrong. Uh, mainly, idolatry is good things that are elevated to ultimate things that we love in order to things. Uh, things we ought to enjoy, things we ought to be thankful for, but we come to love and be controlled by them inordinately. So, uh, romance can be an idol in that way. Uh, your own family, relationships, or, or your career, or ministry in the church, even, can be idolized in that way. It's something you're living for more than God. You can ask yourself, what do you trust? 
What do I trust? What, what do you turn to? What gives you security? Really? What, what really preserves your happiness and your contentment? Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly your God. And we might easily think of uh, easily inherently negative things like drugs or something like that, which certainly can be idolized, but also it can be a job or your investment accounts or health or your social position or your reputation it drives your thinking and your behavior more than God. Collectively, as, as a society, we might idolize government or the free market or science, technology, or a political party. Building your life or meaning or hope or trust on anything more than on God is idolatry. Things that, that drive you more than God, more than His Word. They drive your emotions and your attitude. What you're spending, your use of time. Or how you understand your relationships or your contentment. Phil Reichen has this comment. Because the reason we have trouble recognizing our own private idolatries is not because we don't have false gods anymore, but because we have so many. I think that's true. Idolatry is like the air we breathe. We, we don't notice it or, or think about it. A second reason for the first commandment relative to idolatry is idolatry is enslaving. It's enslaving. You turn back to Romans chapter 1 again with me. Romans chapter 1. Look at verse, uh, beginning at verse 21 there. Paul writes, for even though they knew God, he begins with this premise that everyone knows something true, something of the true God. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. There's a conscious choice to reject the true God. Paul goes on, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Pause again, this is, this is Paul's first note that the rejection of the true God has opposite effects of the desired effects. Their reality is now turned upside down. They were looking for light, now they're in darkness. They were they thought they were wise, but they're actually fools. He goes on, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their heart to impurity, that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Worship and serve the, create, the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to the creating path. Paul here lays out the, the deep irony of idolatry. What, what is the goal of all people who turn away from God? Well, it's, it's to satisfy their lusts, their cravings, as, as Paul says. They want to control their lives, not God. But that's the goal of idolatry, but what's the outcome? They turn away from God's control to control their own lives. They end up being controlled by that which they worship. That's the irony. They become like their lifeless false gods. They become less like God. They become more like the animals that they're worshiping or whatever it is. Idols enslave us. The true God sets us free to be who we were gloriously created to be in His image. I want you to turn with me also to, to Psalm 115. Psalm 115, briefly. Um, Psalm 
Psalm 115 mocks the, much like Isaiah 44 that we read earlier, mocks the false gods, the idols of the nations. Pick up in verse 4 here, Psalm 115, verse 4. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. And then verse 8 is, is really the key here. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts them. Those who worship idols will become like them. Like what? They'll become dead, futile, vain, empty, ineffective, like a block of wood. Uh, not that they become a unable to speak or hear literally, but, but they become spiritually deaf to God, uh, spiritually blind to His glory, uh, dumb in inability to praise Him as God. And there are other places that, that the Scriptures make that same statement, give that same guarantee you will become like what you worship. The psalm and Isaiah and others don't, don't state that as a possibility. So watch out. If you don't worship the true God, you might become like that other thing. No, you will. It, it's an absolute principle. The NIV here in um, Psalm 115 makes it even a little clearer. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust them. Whatever you trust to give you a meaningful life and peace and happiness will shape you. It will change you. Again, we can't, we can't fail, I think, to connect that to idols of our hearts, idols of our culture today. Um, it works just the same as it did thousands of years ago. Uh, David Murray writes helpfully about how, how this might work uh, in our culture. Um, he says, you worship supermodels, or just appearance, you'll become vain, self-centered, driven by your appearance and admiration. You worship football players or the NFL, you'll likely become aggressive, bombastic, woman-demeaning. You worship corporate America, you become greedy, oppressive, materialistic. If you worship academia and the pursuit of degrees, you become proud, arrogant, condescending to others. And we have endless idols to choose from. The encouragement of the scriptures is to worship the one true God and you become like him as he created you to be. Thirdly, letter C on your outline, uh, idolatry is simply the worship of self. The worship of self. So uh, our idols are, are many. The idols of our hearts are complex. Uh, you've probably heard that Calvin has said famously that our, our, idol, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. There's a complexity to this. It's part of the difficulty of it. But at the same time, there's a way to view this very simply, which is that behind all of these idols and all of our sins is just one idol. That's self. It's you. It's me. Any idol that you choose is designed to give you what you want over against what God requires, what God wants. The serving of any idols is serving ultimately your own desires for pleasure, or desires for power, or for control, or reputation, or whatever it might be for yourself. This is often more subtle than thinking than us thinking just explicitly. Why well, I'm choosing this idol and I'm rejecting God. Right? We don't think of it that that starkly. Um, often, 
sinners want to reshape God. We want to soften him or mold him uh, into our image, in a sense. Uh, weaken him uh, in our minds. Some of you know the name of Mark Dever, who's a uh, pastor, writer, speaker, and so on. He, he was teaching a doctoral ministry course, uh, he, he writes, and uh, he made a statement about the, the holiness and the justice of God to his doctoral students. And Bill, he calls him, uh, responds politely but firmly, he says, that he liked to think of God rather differently. He says, for several minutes, he painted a picture of, for us of a very friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise but not meddling, compassionate but never overbearing, ever so resourceful but never interrupting. This, said Bill in conclusion, is how I like to think about God. Uh, and, and Mark says he responded, thanks, Bill, for telling us so much about yourself. Uh, but we're here to study about God today. It, it's very common to hear people use that phrase or, or to read that. How I like to think about God is. And, and the first commandment is here to assure you, it does not matter how you like to think about God. It doesn't matter. Uh, another uh, point to make under the, this, this point C here is that, that since idolatry then is ultimately a worship of self, it, it's circular, right? It's, it's totally unsatisfying. It's a futile exercise. It, it just turns you into a self-licking ice cream cup, right? You're essentially worshiping yourself to get from yourself meaning and happiness that you can't provide. This is what, what the, the men have been wrestling with, with Ecclesiastes on Saturday mornings and um, this is what I think Solomon discovered after having begun serving the Lord faithfully for years and then turning to many other idols, um, literal you know, statues and other gods or sex and women and wealth and power and might and pleasure. And, and he comes in Ecclesiastes, it seems, to recount how he, he, how he tried all of these things and came up utterly and, and despairingly empty. On every count. Again, Phil Reichen comments, he said, this is what happens to everyone who breaks the first commandment because it's a circular worshiping of yourself. He says, in the end, of course, those who follow other gods will be judged for their sins. It's, it's wrong. But, he goes on, long before judgment, there is emptiness and despair in that path. Well, another, fourthly, uh, another key in understanding idolatry in the first commandment and, and all the commandments, letter D here, is idolatry stands behind every sin. Idolatry stands behind every sin. It's not a, it's not a separate category of sin. So we have these kinds of sins, and then we have idolatry over here. Uh, if idolatry is the main issue in the first commandment, and the first commandment is, is foundational and fundamental to all the others. Every sin is a result of some idolatry of the heart. Uh, think about a simple example. The guy, we'll call him Doug. Doug's cheating on his income taxes. How do you describe Doug's sin? Well, he's, he's breaking the eighth commandment. Right? He's stealing. And he's breaking the ninth commandment. He's lying. But, but why? What's more, fun, what's more fundamental? Doug is making money, material things, or maybe the status that he gets from them, of higher importance than God. 
That's what's driving his, his decisions, and he's worshiping those idols, but ultimately he's worshiping himself. Right? And what he wants from those idols of self. And, and breaking the first commandment first. Uh, Martin Luther argues there's a close connection between justification uh, by grace alone through faith alone and the first commandment. In fact, he argues they're essentially the same thing. Um, failing to find satisfaction and salvation and righteousness in God alone and trying to find it in something else is idolatry. Where's the first commandment? Uh, think about this example. Uh, a Christian lies to her friend uh, rather than losing face over something that she's ashamed of, something wrong she's done. Again, how do we describe that sin? She's breaking the ninth commandment. She's telling a lie. But more, more fundamentally, she's making the approval of others and, and her own reputation an idol above God, above the righteousness and the freedom that Christ has purchased for her. Uh, and again, her ultimate idol is, is self in that. Breaking the first commandment. We could say that the whole process of sanctification, of, of Becoming like Christ and putting off sin uh, can be seen as the process of recognizing our idolatries, finding them in our hearts, recognizing them, putting them aside, turning to God. And then, and then we do it all over again. We find new idolatries. We, more often we find that the ones we saw before are much deeper than we realized. And we then put them off and turn to God. And this is how we become like Him. Because idolatry is at the root of every single sin. Uh, every sin involves failing to serve God exclusively. Uh, we so easily justify or we're totally blind to a life that, that worships and is controlled at least in part by God and right, controlled by God and social status and, and reputation. Or God and building a career. Or God and relationships or control, or even ministry, and we can go on and on. Uh, we need to resist our, our culture's resistance to the idea of a God who makes a jealous, exclusive claim on, relation, uh, on relationship with us. He's totally intolerant of rivals to his honor and to your relationship with him as your Lord. Uh, again, that sounds stifling and restrictive and selfish to the world around us, but God will not share his glory. Uh, he, he is not um, uh, tolerant of rivals to his honor. Uh, marriage is a, a good analogy for this absolute exclusivity. Uh, uh, Kevin DeYoung shares it, it like this, uh, illustrating what our toleration of sin and, and behind that of idols in our life is like. He says, suppose a husband came home and said, Honey, it's good to see you. I want to introduce you to someone who's very special to me. Don't get me wrong, you're also very special to me. But I've met someone else. She's lovely and I'm going to spend some time with her. But also a lot of time with you. I just want to let you know that some nights I'm going to be with her instead. I think you two will get along just fine. You'll be great friends. You both mean so much to me. Well, what, what would a wife say to that? Would she say, great, you know, I, I'm just so happy to still be part of your life. And I just want you to be happy of course not. A, a, a faithful life would demand total, exclusive loyalty. You have to choose. Right? And if she demanded that with jealous passion and anger, no one would fault her as being intolerant. Right? 
reflects the nature of marriage. That's how she ought to respond. God demands exclusive rights to our love and worship uh, as our creator, as our redeemer. And so I want to conclude then with, with the positive call of the first commandment. Uh, three on your outline here, which I summarize this with love, trust, fear, fill in the blank, the ways that the scriptures might put this to us, hope in the one true God, uh, the Lord your God. And, and again, I'm going to be fairly brief on this point for a couple of reasons. One is sim- it's one is that it's a simple point. I, I kind of want to leave it as a simple point with you. Uh, secondly, maybe I'm speaking to my own need more than yours, but my sense is that we have a greater gap in our understanding of idolatry uh, than the call positively to, to devote ourselves lovingly to our Heavenly Father, something maybe we more easily, readily talk about. Um, but also, again, we've already discussed at length the relation between the Ten Commandments to God's grace in Christ, to pursuing Him, to loving Him um, in, the, in the first three sermons. So again, uh, check those out if you, if you missed that. But the first commandment, it, it, it's like the boat, like most of it is stated negatively, but the rest of the Bible fills out our understanding of what it means to have this one true God. What does it mean to have, and, and, and how do we relate to the one true God, a God who sent His only Son to die for our sins, that we would be part of His family, know his love, but we're to love him, to trust him. Uh, we're called to loyalty to him, to fear him, which biblically sums up those other um, uh, terms I just used, to praise him, to give thanks to him for everything, to hope in him, uh, to serve him. That's all implied in having the one true God as, as your God. Uh, Deuteronomy 6 which Jesus uses to summarize these first commandments, essentially relates, uh, restates the first commandment and then makes this positive implication explicit. Because God is our, the only God and our covenant God, Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, no other gods. Right? So what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You're to love him. Another way we might summarize it biblically is, is the first commandment calls you to glorify him alone. Because there's no neutrality towards God, everything you do in your life is either in service to him or it's not. It's either following his designs and commands or it's not. It's, it's either glorifying him or it's not. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, familiar words, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John Calvin summarizes the call of the first commandment this way, it's a call to contemplate, fear, and worship His majesty, to participate in His blessings, to seek His help at all times, to recognize and by praises to celebrate the greatness of His works, all as the only goal of all the activities life. And I want to say also, in one sense, God asks of you in total devotion uh, what he has done for you himself. Uh, He's given himself unconditionally, sacrificially to you, lavishly to you. In the person of Jesus, he suffered for you, died for your sins. He lives and reigns for you. He 
He's made you a child of God freely by His grace. So you must see living for Him, glorifying Him, loving Him, trusting Him alone, not only as your duty, which it is, but also as the greatest possible blessing and privilege that you can have to serve a gracious and lavishly generous God who wants to give you every good thing and perfect joy in communion with Himself forever. Let's end there and pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to know and to set aside our idols. Help us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our souls, with all our might. Help us to give ourselves fully and freely and joyfully to you. To see that that is not only what you demand and deserve, but that it is our greatest good and hope and joy. So we ask all of this uh, in the name of Christ and for his sake.